Welcome to the DTB podcast for February 2018, volume 56, number two. My name's David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, a DTB editor-in-chief. In our editorial this month, we discuss the development of patient decision aids to support clinical guidelines. So what prompted this? So this was NICE's new guidelines on the management of endometriosis. And as part of that, they have produced a really very useful patient decision aid to help with really quite a, obviously quite a complex set of decisions around the treatment and management of endometriosis, because most of the treatments obviously have another side to them which can have an impact on a woman's life so these are very helpful decision aids to help women understand the consequences of their decisions for certain treatments and what does it cover things like symptom relief contraceptive reliability the effect of the treatment on their periods and also you know how you stop treatments and if you want to plan a pregnancy all those sorts of issues and also the consequences of treatments like deep vein thrombosis so all that is given in in a way which actually is very much better and easier for clinicians to better explain with patients and make those decisions together and we've seen with i think it was sinusitis guidance and i think also this one is supported by it the sort of little pictograms to show how many people you'd need to treat in order to get a benefit so all adding to this story of how you explain and discuss with people the the value of an intervention but isn't this common for all guidelines well this is this is the remarkable thing actually we we as you know we spent some some time on the nice website trying to see how many patient decision aids they have connected with their guidelines and I think we found 1400 pages of guidance and I think now of course NICE can contact us if we've got this wrong but we thought there are nine uh, examples of patient decision aids related to their guidance. So nine out of 1400 where we could find something that was called a patient decision. Correct I mean we may be wrong they may be called something else or they may be tucked away in other places but that's if you if you're searching for them on the NICE website then you're going to probably be able to find nine. But it would seem to me fairly obvious that if you're going to actually implement a guideline then you need something to help you discuss it with a patient absolutely and of course i think there's a there's another side to this in the sense that actually if you get better patient engagement you begin to wonder perhaps you won't get slavish sticking to guidelines because actually patients will then be able to put their own values into that decision their own ideas of what they value and what is important to them and so in fact what we might find rather contrary to expectation is that patients will be more confident and they will have a better understanding of decisions being made and they may decide they you know they don't want to comply necessarily with the decision points that the guidance suggests so somebody's going to say ah but do these work do patient decisions make any difference to outcomes and of course if if you look at clinical outcomes if you like hard outcomes the answer is at the moment no there's no evidence that they do but as i've just said what they definitely do is improve patient confidence they obviously uh, improve the knowledge base that patients have and that can only be a good thing if nothing more than improving the patient's clinician relationship improving that trust and making sure that medicine is truly focused on patients now clearly you can't have a patient decision aid for every single facet of a clinical guideline but as we were discussing earlier surely the very process of putting together a patient decision aid helps crystallize how the guidelines should work in practice i think that's that's the most interesting thing there's nothing better than uh, and i've experienced this myself when you're involved in a nice guideline and the patient uh, representative in the group says 
now just just explain that to me again or you know and and you suddenly find that of course what you're dealing with is splitting hairs here and from a patient's point of view actually you know the clarity is required before you can really understand what's going on so whenever we commission a new guideline we should also commission the production of a patient decision aid that's what we decide yes okay thank you very much so our first main article this month reviews Kylina. This is the latest intrauterine contraceptive to be launched in the UK. So tell me a bit about it. What is it? So this is a livinogestrel containing intrauterine device. So it's, at a very simplistic point of view, it's a cut-down Mirena, I suppose you could say. So it's smaller. It's two millimetres shorter, both in length and in width and it contains less levonorgestrel as a result. So it's the same size as the J-Dress, which has um, already been licensed, but it's got less progesterone than Mirena. So this is the fourth licensed product in the UK? That's right, and it's the third, actually, which is marketed by Bayer. And so anyone who wants to compare them will have to get their information on both their duration of activity, their licensed use, which is between three and five years, depending on the product, and also the range of indications, because again, they vary. This one, though, is only licensed for contraception? That's right. So this is licensed for five years for contraception only. It's not licensed for heavy menstrual bleeding, which Mirena is, and it's not licensed to be used with HRT as the endometrial suppression element of that. If you want that, you need to use Mirena. So outcomes, it works? Yes, it's. if you look at things like pregnancy outcomes, it's comparable with all the others. They all seem to have very comparable rates. And to put that into perspective, if you are using an intrauterine device with progesterone core, you'd expect about 0.2 women in 100 each year to fall pregnant. And that compares very well with about nine per hundred using oral contraceptives. So they all produce similar outcomes. They stop pregnancies pretty much. Any difference in adverse effects, or is it standard for what you'd expect with a levonorgestrel? Yeah, they seem to be the same across the ball in the sense that acne, headaches, um, bleeding abnormalities, they all seem to be very similar across all, all the different devices. So bottom line, we've now got four products. It'll depend a little bit on duration of use and cost but nothing at the moment particularly to differentiate between them? No, I think as far as contraception is concerned, the bottom line is, is, is little. There may be issues around insertion ease. Obviously, this device and its insertion tube is smaller than Mirena. And I think for many clinicians, that may be the issue for them. This may be a, a better option in the nulliparous um, women, for example. Okay, thank you very much. Our final article this month reviews Cladribine, which has been licensed for highly active relapsing MS. Now, over the last few years, we've reviewed several new drugs for MS, and I think this is about the fifth that we've done since 2012. So what's interesting about cladribine? Yes, this, this is actually a drug that's been around for some years and is actually already licensed for the treatment of certain lymphomas. It's a pro-drug, and it's metabolized to chlorodeoxy adenosine and is used to say in the treatment of uh, lymphomas it's a it's a t and b lymphocyte depleter so it's very immunosuppressive and in fact it's interesting that they tried to license this for the treatment of multiple sclerosis way back in 2010 and the ema actually were unhappy about the 
risk-benefit analysis because of its immunosuppressive action, but have just recently given it a license in 2017. So in terms of effectiveness, what do we know? Yeah, so we've got this randomised controlled trial um, 96 weeks long of about 1,300 patients. They excluded patients who'd already had two or more other disease-modifying drugs and this was for patients with, as you say, highly active relapsing MS. And the primary outcome from this study was rate of relapses um, at, at 96 weeks. And can we say much about how much difference it made to relapse? Yes, they. I mean, obviously this was a placebo-controlled trial, and what they found was they had fewer relapses. There was less progression to disability. Obviously, they, in all these studies, there are quite complex uh, scoring systems they use to assess a patient's disease activity and severity. So they found fewer relapses, less progression of disability, and also a reduction in the brain count of lesions on an MRI scanner. But there is something interesting about the license and the dosing of this product in that it's given as two short dosing regimes? Yes, it has quite a unique pathology. And in fact, before we came in, I was going to try and work out how much this works out at cost per tablet, because I suspect this is probably the most expensive chemical drug as opposed to monoclonal antibody that there is. But the way you give it is you have five days of uh, treatment and then a year later, another five days of treatment. And that's it. And that gives you four years worth of cover. So there's lots of that, that in itself raises lots of interesting questions about, so what happens at the end of year two if you start to see relapses or progression? How will you manage that? And I guess we probably don't know at this stage what happens to that because the data only covers those those two treatment courses. And in terms of harms, what what are the anticipated harms? This is, I think, the big issue for this this drug is it causes significant lymphopenia, low lymphocyte counts. About one in five patients will get mild to moderate levels of lymphopenia. And that obviously increases uh, your theoretical infection risk. In the study I just quoted from about 20 patients in the cladribine group developed herpes zoster for example so there's an issue about before you even start treatment you know has this patient got a latent infection you need to screen for HIV TB hepatitis so you know that is a big issue also there was a malignancy concern and in fact uh, the EMA has licensed this drug on the basis that there will be some post-authorization safety work done over 15 years to assess uh, malignancy risk but there's a particular problem about blood counts. Any other drug that you're taking on a daily basis, clearly you'd stop if you started seeing a decline in blood counts. This one, once you've taken it, that's it for the next Well, that's years. it for the next two years. Oh, certainly for the next year in, in the first time you take it, that's right. And there are obviously rules around what you do with that second dose after one year based on the level of white cell count. So now we've got this plethora of drugs for MS. Is it clear which one works best? Which is the most cost effective? No, I mean, you know, we talked about the results from this drug. And remember, this was a drug that hasn't been compared with any of the others. And in fact, they excluded in this Clarity study anyone who'd had two or more other disease-modifying drugs. So we have very little comparative data across the patch for all these different drugs. And I think this is the area where we need to see more evidence to enable us to actually understand the position of all these drugs in the management of this obviously quite significant disease. So although there are individual technology appraisal pieces of guidance for 
individual drugs. There's nothing that puts them all together and says, first line go here, second line go here. Precisely. And I, as you know, we spent some time also looking at the cost effectiveness because NICE has suggested that this, this drug is used as an option in rapidly um, evolving severe relapsing or remitting MS. So they've suggested it's recommended and they've done that on the basis of a really very complex economic model where they've tried to compare it uh, with the other drugs. But obviously that is just a model and whilst it comes out favourably, we we don't have a, the comparative head-to-head data that we need. Okay, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or suggestions for future content, please email dtb at bmj.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.